0: I am Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With David Canfield. Hi. And with Rebecca Ford. Hello. We have lots of little bits of news to talk about today. Uh, There are more and more festival announcements coming out. There's a new president of the Academy The Emmys are coming, uh, and we also have Book Club. uh, Our second book club of August will be coming. We'll be discussing She Said with Vanity Fair's editor-in-chief, Radika Jones. A great get, I would say. Um, But let's start with the newest news as we record this, which is that Kenan Thompson is going to host this year's Emmys. There had been a not especially well-sourced rumor. I don't think that uh, there might not be a host of this year's Emmys. Um, They, for some reason, keep making these last-minute decisions, but Kenan seems like a great Emmys host. Like, it's it's gonna be good, right? Does anyone have anything to say other than great? Good Ian choice. We'll be good at this. Yeah. Good
2: choice. Yeah. To be perfectly honest, the only hosting rumor that I care about at the moment is one that I got from our friends at Who Weekly, which is that Vanessa Hudgens is being spoken about as a potential replacement for James Corden. Um, which <laughs> oh,
0: like on her, on his show?
2: Literally, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's just clouded my mind, and when I hear the word host uh, for the past twenty four hours, but <laughs> oh wow. Um, no, I think Keenan's great. I think it'll be fun. People love him in the industry. He's been around. He probably knows everybody at this point. And, uh, you know, I don't know that he'll be a big ratings draw, but I don't know what really would be to the Emmys at this point.
4: I do find the network merry-go-round of getting their stars <laughs> to host Emmys, like, hilariously outdated at this point. Um So that aside, Keenan is a great choice and a great choice for NBC. What a coincidence. But (laughs) last year we had Cedric the Entertainer, who did a fine job, uh, but because he is on a CBS sitcom. So I, I wonder how long that's going to go. But it is very, very, very defining for who we get to host the Emmys every year.
0: Well, I think we ask ourselves this every year with the Oscars, too. Like, why don't they just pick them six months in advance and, like, you know, and pick Tom Holland and have him clear his schedule and give him people time to get excited? But for some reason, this is the format we have. And then they find the best person on their network, and then we all just do it again the next year. Can we fix this ever? I also feel like if they booked people that far in advance, people would bail because you'd get
3: nervous or <laughs> something would happen in your publicity that you'd be like, I don't want to host anyway. It'd
0: just be too high risk to book that early. <laughs> That's probably fair. There's no good way to do it. But Keenan, if anyone, is going to know how to step in. We figure he can do it. Um, all right. All right. Well, back to festival season, which is the other pressing thing because, uh, as, as I know, I've said, uh, Toronto Film Festival and the Emmys are happening at the same time. Um, and there's been lots of little bits of TIFF news coming out. Um, last week, we kind of got more into the uh, the full lineup. We now know the Midnight Madness lineup, which includes the uh, Weird Al biopic, which I'm <laughs> really excited about. Um, Mary Heron's Dolly Land has been in no- announced as the closing night film. And then maybe the big title that. I'm intrigued by is The Inspection, which is going to be opening the Discovery section, which is kind of for, like, new up-and-coming filmmakers. Um, And it also is going to be the closing night film of the New York Film Festival, which I think, David, you and I were discussing this. I don't think another film has done that before. That is an interesting double-hitter for that one.
4: It's a really unusual and intriguing pairing. I'm looking at that opening slot at TIFF as part of the Discovery section, and it feels kind of ingenious to me because... The opening night at TIFF is typically not a huge draw or at least featuring a hugely, um, like last year's Dear Evan Hansen, which was, I suppose, a big movie, but not in a good way. (laughs) Um... Whereas this year you have The Swimmers, which is a Netflix doc. It could be great, but it's hardly like, you know, a woman talking or a Fablemans. Um, And so you have this other movie premiering in that slot with Jeremy Pope, who is a really exciting rising star, uh, multi-Tony nominee. Uh, He was Emmy-nominated for Hollywood. Um, It's a queer marine drama, I believe, um, from a first-time feature director. So there's a lot of, you know, interest in it. And it's coming from A24 and... A New York Film Festival is a lot to choose from every year. And the fact that they would make this their closing night film uh, coming off of a TIFF premiere feels really significant. So yeah, it's pretty high on my list, actually.
3: It's also, I think, tied very closely to the director's like own story, which yep. yeah. makes it obviously more interesting for all of us to
0: see. I'm looking at the description sent out by the New York York Film Festival, and the part that's getting my attention in the cast list is a revelatory Gabrielle Union, uh, which is very exciting. She's been a movie star. She's also producing, by the way. Yes. Um, And she's someone who's been famous and successful and celebrated for a long time, but, like, a real breakout movie role for her? Like, that's such an intriguing possibility.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Oscars love of sort of, like, entering a different realm of stardom um, is always an interesting narrative, so... I would love to see that from Gabrielle Union. But, you know, David, you said queer marine drama, and I can ever, anytime I hear that phrase, which is often, um, I can only think of the Emma Roberts JoJo movie, Aquamarine. So oh my God. Just, I don't know if these movies are related at all, but just. <laughs> well, it's it not going to be that queer. Yeah. I mean, it literally <laughs> yeah. cannot be, but yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, to go back to Dolly Land for a second, the, uh, the closing night film, um, we were discussing this beforehand, but at some point when this movie was being made a while ago, Ezra Miller was part of the cast playing uh, the young Dolly. Uh, Ezra Miller now uh, kind of notoriously on a something of a crime spree and also the star of The Flash um, is not in the cast list as announced by TIFF, so we don't know if they've been cut out of the movie. But an interesting asterisk on a film from Mary Heron, a director, I think, who makes really interesting stuff and we all are rooting for, so I'm very curious about what happens there.
4: Yeah, I I got the email with the the Closing Night announcement, and I was like, oh, my God, a new film from Mary Heron, a Dali biopic, I'm in. And then I Googled it, and the first image was released, I think, almost two years ago, at least over a year ago. Uh, And then I saw that Ezra Miller was cast as the young Dali, and as you mentioned, Katie, they are not in the cast list revealed today as of this recording. So it's a much bigger question mark than the five minutes ago when I was super excited about it. But uh, Mm. Mary Heron's I think her last, well, the last project I saw first was Alias Grace, which was terrific. And Sarah Polly, of course, wrote that. She will also be at TIFF with her new movie.
0: Every Um, week we mention Alias Grace on this podcast. I know.
4: (laughs) Well, the roads are converging here. The (laughs) Alias, all roads lead to Alias Grace, apparently. (laughs) Um, But yeah, she's a director who um, I think has been underserved by Hollywood for a long time.
2: So I'm hoping the movie delivers. I mean, it is interesting with the Ezra Miller of it all to see that this is kind of the first potential road test for how productions handle their presence in their films. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, people are talking about what's going to become of Flash because apparently that movie is testing well and whatever, but I guess they're still planning and like the studio's high on it, but like I just don't see that they can release that movie with Ezra Miller as a lead. So maybe this movie, which is smaller in profile considerably, and I don't know how big that role was, maybe there's some careful excision to be done, or they're just going to say, we're not going to tout the fact that Ezra Miller's in this. You're just going to have to deal with it. And we're, we're just not going to kind of acknowledge it in some way.
0: Yeah. I mean, you think of all the the weird Kevin Spacey creative cuts that have been done. Um, nothing on the scale of the flash load. That, that that seems like the biggest problem actor that there has been um, in this era. And one more TIFF thing, I think one more, I don't know, it seems to be occupying a lot of our th- thoughts these days, uh, but they announced a big tribute award for the entire cast of My Policeman. And um, can you guys remind me, is there like a especially noteworthy person in the cast of My Policeman who they might really want to have show up at an award show?
3: Is there someone who does music or something? He
2: sings songs.
3: <laughs> I think he's
2: British yeah, or, or Australian or something. Yeah.
0: Um. Rebecca uh I mean you you wrote our first look at my my policeman you can know more about it than anyone um Harry Styles is going to get an award at TIFF is this uh this seems like a good plan for the film festival right
3: Yeah I I think this has a really it's not just Harry but uh Emma Corrin you know also I think has a lot of heat and I think having Harry in Toronto is really big for the festival and and a way to make sure he comes and does some press and shows up on stage is is give him a big award you know he is this is a lead role for him and i think will prove if you know he's an actor or not and and they seem very confident in the film and you know what i've seen and the images that have come out in the trailer it, it looks like a, a a really beautiful project so uh, i think it definitely shows that the studio is high on it and it could be a really great
0: big step for harry Yeah, Harry, who also has Don't Worry Darling at Venice, as we've talked about. So, um, really interesting. And and he's on tour, right? Like, isn't he just, like, playing out arenas, and now it's going to be at film festivals and then go back to arena shows? It's um, not a bad life. He's doing okay for himself, I think.
4: (laughs) I I guess, I I think the interesting question is, if the movie really delivers, what does a Harry-style Oscars campaign look like? Like, how much is he going to do? I don't even think you can compare it to a Lady Gaga, because he is... He he's just a different category, <laughs> and oh, that's um, interesting.
0: I don't know if I would automatically say that. I I
4: think because he is, I think he's slowly built a film career or tried to. You know, he had the role in Dunkirk. He has two movies in the same year, whereas you know, with Lady Gaga and A Star Is Born, it was this really grand introduction. It was right revelation. there in the title, and you could say. <laughs> but it was exactly <laughs> yeah. And with him, I I you know, he's such a he, you know, such an idol, such a, he's so famous. <laughs> and it does feel like, I have a hard time seeing him going all out with it. Um, but I guess everyone wants an Oscar and maybe I
2: shouldn't doubt it. But I think the question <laughs> is between Toronto and Oscars voting, how many Academy members kids have bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs, sweet 16s that he could make (laughs) appearances at, college graduations. I mean, you know, his fans are not teenagers really necessarily anymore. So, um, yeah, I mean, the difference between him and Gaga, obviously, is that Gaga is that huge big star persona, whereas Harry Styles of late has been sort of refashioned as this like, and I don't think cynically or falsely, I think it's just maybe his truer self as this sort of more introspective, his music has gotten you know it's less pop and more I mean it's poppy but it's not you know it's it's alt pop I guess you could say and um so this is his kind of like indie root in you know in these two interesting seeming projects that um you know are both I guess maybe on the face both period pieces but maybe that's their only similarity you know um so I'll be curious to see if it works, um, because, you know, if nothing else, guys, it's good for us. People will click <laughs> on things about Harry Styles. It's also good
4: for the TikTok contingent of SAG, who are going to line up behind Harry Styles. <laughs> That's well, right. SAG
0: but, is, a yeah. lo- is a large membership. There's a lot. Are there literal <laughs> TikTokers? Like, in yes, the-
2: we've, we've in discussed. The- yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, as we discussed when we talked about My Policeman, the book, over the summer, like, the part that Harry Styles is playing is, like, maybe the least dynamic character in the movie. He's, like, the, the character the whole story revolves around, but it's not, like, a big—I'm not imagining a big flashy part like, say, Lady Gaga in a Star is Born, um, which I think might be a smarter route for someone who's building a film career, um, you know, kind of like a slow and steady build.
4: Yeah. We talked about it in Book Club. It's— the frustration of for me of the book is that he is so opaque you know it's the yeah. other two characters perspectives exclusively the movie can't you know you you have access to him through the camera so
2: he will have some level of interpretation there which could be interesting too and isn't there some sort of evidence at least in a post credit scene that he is now poised to be a bigger role in the marvel universe right so, I like, do
0: seem to remember him showing up on a spaceship.
2: At the end of the of Eternals, <laughs> I think. But oh. I don't know if that was just like a Benicio del Toro thing where he just popped up and then like his character never really went anywhere. Well, Wasn't um,
0: Benicio del Toro in a couple of Marvel movies?
2: But like small part and then he got killed or sure, something or sure. faked his death or something. But like, some, I don't know. But like Harry Styles <laughs> like clearly getting his feet wet literally in Dunkirk, that big studio movie and then going sort of indie for a little while. And then maybe going back to studio like that, that is kind of a more traditional path to movie, you know, stardom than was Gaga's like, here I am, you know, like <laughs> that doesn't right. work very often. And very few people get that opportunity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're making me remember what a freaking miracle stars was <laughs> <laughs> and oh how God. unlikely that seemed to be. So, so great. Um, Well, there's some news from the Academy itself, uh, which is quieter now as we kind of wait to see all these movies that will be in the Oscar race. Uh, But Janet Yang was announced as the new president of the Academy. Um, Rebecca, you were kind of on top of this news and uh, realized that she was one of the top contenders. Uh, How's she going to be as a president?
3: I think she's going to be great. Um, You know, the interesting thing about Janet is she is a governor at large. They're not voted on or selected by their branch. She's a member of the producers' branch. She produced *Joy Luck Club*, uh, *The People versus Larry Flint*. She's a very well-known veteran producer. Um, but to be selected for this, you know, even though she wasn't sort of traditionally brought in as a governor, um, kind of reflects the support she has in this community. And you know, the th- the thing about Janet is, um, you know, being Asian American, I've closely followed how the Asian American stories have sort of risen in Hollywood. And we're talking mainly as recently as like Crazy Rich Asians. But Janet is sort of known as the godmother of Asians in Hollywood. She's a huge mentor behind the scenes. She helped found Gold House. She, you know, created alliances within the Academy when there were some things that have happened in the past at the Oscars that have offended Asians. And so she can get a lot done and quietly and gracefully. So I think that might really suit her well in this leadership position.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think with the slap, we saw so much of how like internal hierarchy within the academy, like all of them trying to make those decisions in the heat of the moment and someone who can have leadership skills in that way seems like maybe exactly what they need at this moment. Yeah, it's definitely a hard position and
3: um, I'm sure she'll have a lot of challenges facing her. But yeah, I think being able to sort of, you know, talk to people who have a lot of strong opinions within in the academy will will be one of her strengths.
2: Can I ask yeah. a technical question? Because I think I'm getting confused with this and like SAG president. Is a president of the academy a paid position?
3: It's not. The um, Bill Kramer is a full time paid position, which is the CEO, but the president is is not like a full time job. Like she'll still remain probably a producer as she oh, is okay. as well. So it's
2: so it's not like I'm leaving that strain of my career and going to this. It's like a yeah, it's like an added thing.
3: It's like another job. <laughs> right. Yeah.
2: They tend to they tend
4: to work a little bit less in that process. Um, And uh, the other interesting thing is that Kramer is set to call an all-members meeting, which previous leadership had um, resisted uh, in September. And so it does feel like with all these various positive announcements and trying to create this effort to bring everybody in and reassess after so much controversy that they are taking some hopefully positive steps to (laughs) uh, undoing some of the, the bad headlines of the past year or years.
0: Many I cannot years. wait to hear how a, that Zoom call gets accomplished with thousands of people do, from do all you around mean the technically
4: world.
0: Technically, or <laughs> I know, I all in all ways, I'm very curious about what that looks like. Same. So before we get into our book club segment, uh, we should talk about HBO Max and Warner Brothers and Discovery Plus and everything else. I do think we want to get into it in more detail, maybe with some of our colleagues more focused on the business side of things. Uh, But last week on Twitter was so bananas with people (laughs) like writing their obituaries for HBO Max ahead of an earnings call in which they announced what I think we would all have assumed that they have two streaming services now, Discovery Plus and HBO Max, and that they will eventually become one next summer titled TBD. Even, at, you know, in the time of Twitter freakouts, I felt like the obituary for HBO was being written prematurely because HBO is this really valuable brand name. But it does seem like, given the Batgirl shelving, like, we can probably expect some more tough decisions and weirdness at at Warner Brothers. Do, does anyone have a clearer sense of what the future might hold?
2: Can I be a kind of probably blinkered optimist about this whole thing?
0: <laughs> yeah, Please.
2: Um, Look, obviously, for the people who made Batgirl and anything else that they have shelved, that's devastating. And I totally understand anger and sadness over that. Absolutely. So that probably blights my all of my optimism right there. But zoomed out way far out. I do think there might be something encouraging about the new ownership of the company which is, you know, involved in the entertainment business, not like AT&T was, you know, uh, in in they're directly involved in it, saying we have to kind of focus on what has worked historically, which is like, we make movies that go into theaters, we make good shows that go onto television. And then everything after that is sort of ancillary or extra or whatever. And I I don't know, I find something kind of hopeful in a weird way about this concession that there have been a lot of compromises made, and I think diminishing quality that's been born out of like the streaming revolution Um, so I, I know that like people have become very endeared to HBO max. I mean, my understanding is there will still be Warner brothers movies and HBO shows on a streaming service. Um, it just, you know, the original content will suffer, but I think a studio saying, or the new ownership of a studio saying, we kind of think the old model served us and our viewers, customers, whatever, however you want to put it better than did these kind of weird middle ground things that were too Big, you know, we're too small for theatrical, but maybe too outsized for streaming. I don't know. I, am might totally crazy that I see something kind of um, refreshing about that. I completely agree. I thought I was alone in that.
4: <laughs> I, I I think <laughs> that there has been a bit of collective amnesia too with how people felt about a lot of the HBO Max strategy before all of this. Discovery Chaos, you know, the stream direct-to-streaming movies thing, those movies got lost extremely quickly. Even the good ones, like some of Soderbergh's movies, um, it just was really hard for them to find any kind of audience, because the model is really, really complicated for features. It just is. And um, especially if you're in the business of making blockbusters and Finding this weird middle ground never made a ton of sense to me. Obviously, I'm not in that business, and there are people who know better than me. But, you know, to me, the ultimate sign that of blinkered optimism, perhaps, as you say, Richard, is uh, Casey Bloise is one of the most sought-after, respected executives in this industry. He's been at HBO for a number of years, and he re-upped with a five-year contract right before all of these announcements. He knew they were coming. And he is there to continue doing what he's done, maybe at a slightly more reduced scale, because there was that HBO Max mandate to grow and grow and grow and grow. And and that was seemingly somewhat in conflict with what HBO was as a really curated distributor and and service. But, you know, in terms of what HBO has been and what's made it great, I don't really see any sign that that's going to go away. I, I think... Certainly, the way that they've handled the cancellations of movies like Batgirl and stripped some stuff from the service has been, I would say, honestly, stupid. (laughs) PR wise, (laughs) it's it doesn't make any sense to me, and I think it does send us, you know, it's a really terrible signal to filmmakers. There is this feeling of chaos, and I don't want to bring my movie to a studio that might not make it. And there is this feeling now of a lack of reliability. But um, in terms of the actual substance of what they're trying to do, it makes complete sense to me.
0: Yeah, you think of that, you know, message to filmmakers after the, you know, sending everything to HBO Max decision that presumably ran Christopher Nolan right off to another studio. Like that, those are two big hurdles to to get past in this effort. And I have to say, I really feel for Leslie Grace because like yeah. she,
3: she starred, you know, In the Heights, she's great in that, and that movie suffered from... I don't know, a cursed release because of the pandemic and, and now this with Batgirl. I, I just hope whatever she does next gets to be released in the way a movie should be, whatever yeah. way that is.
2: <laughs> I think what I really, what I ho- take from this, and, you know, it's it, Netflix is a whole different entity where they had this subscriber base that f- had come for, like, movies that they didn't make and then they started doing original stuff. And I think kind of reverse engineering that in a way, not reverse engineering, but sort of approaching it from the studio side is that, like, you see them, you know, they're, they're taking these titles off of HBO Max. They're not, they're available to, to buy or rent, you know. And I think it seems to be the new management saying, oh, we used to make money from licensing our movies. And hmm. I- instead of just putting them in our, on our own in-house service, you know, where we're not getting those those fees like we used to, you know, that th- that's an interesting to, the, sort of, pivot mm-hmm. and also like i think that if you're if you're focusing on sunday night hbo viewers theater going audiences, that's an active audience. And I think that like having a passive customer who just subscribes to something, it renews every month, um, you know, that's a different mandate to kind of please that customer because how many people really go in and cancel the subscription? I'm sure many do. I'm sure many don't, you know, I know I'm certainly someone who has a lot of kind of recurring subscriptions that I forgot about, you know, to little added channels on things that, you know, um, I I watch, I I subscribe for one movie and I was like, I'll cancel after the first free week. And then I didn't. I like the idea of a studio saying, no, we have to we have to sell them on every single thing, you know, because it's we need the eyeballs on the television. We need the people, you know, in the theaters. Um, I like the idea of them courting a a more active customer um, than is that sort of passive streaming model.
0: Well, we'll talk more about this, I'm sure. You know, hopefully there's no more, you know, crazy rumor weeks, but who knows? Um, And I think. As the weird streaming future takes shape, we're probably going to get more and more of these from more and more different studios. Um, so, if you can continue sending us your questions too, because I think it's nice hearing from listeners who are sometimes as baffled by all this as we are. So we're happy to kick off the second week of our August Book Club series, talking about She Said, the book by Jodi Kantor and Megan Toohey, about their Pulitzer Prize-winning Harvey Weinstein investigation. And joining us to talk about it is Vanity Fair's editor-in-chief for Jones. Hi, Dika. Hi, Katie. It's great to be here. Uh, I love having you back for book clubs, especially because I think of you as one of our, our, our readers-in-chief at the magazine. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of, you know, gave you your pick of the books we'd be discussing. And I think you gravitated towards She Said really quickly, maybe for obvious reasons as a, another media person. Um, but why was
1: this a book in particular you wanted to talk about? Well, a number of reasons. Um- One of them is that it's a really thrilling book about the practice of journalism, and I feel like that is very hard to pull off. Often what we do, especially on tough stories, is not exactly glamorous. You know, it can take a lot of time. There's a lot of uh, legalese. There's um, a lot of persuasion and research that goes into it. And that's not always, those aren't always processes that come alive on the page, let alone on the screen. So I'm very interested to see how this book will make the leap to the big screen. Um, I, I think knowing beloved films as we do, like Spotlight and All the President's Men, I, we have we can have high hopes that that it will be equally thrilling. But I I just I feel very invested in one of the messages that I think the book brings across so clearly, which is that exposing these kinds of stories is incredibly difficult. Um, it takes a lot of patience and perseverance um, and persuasion. And that's what we try to accomplish at Vanity Fair when we tackle a big story like this. So it's close to my heart for that reason. The other reason is that I was actually working at the New York Times when this story was being reported and published. And so personally, I know a lot of the the players in the book um, and had the experience of, of working with them and seeing the tremendous impact that their reporting made. And, uh, and so it's a pleasure to now knowing knowing what a great impact the reporting had. it's It's really interesting to look back and remember that that was not a foregone conclusion. yeah um, that there are moments in this story where Jody and Megan had a lot of they had a lot of meetings. they had heard a lot of things. They had even seen a lot of documents, but but was it yet publishable? Not really. So I think that n- knowing the gap between what you can know happened, um, what you can feel, you know, with a great degree of accuracy and truth happened and what you are able to support publishing in a major media outlet like the New York Times or like our own Vanity Fair. That there's a big gulf between those things. And, and I think it will be interesting to see how the film dramatizes that and kind of Gets that across to audiences because I think it's not always clear to people who don't work in the business. Um, why, you know, well, if you know that these terrible things happen, why can't you just publish them? Mm-hmm. Um, you have the power, but it's not that simple, obviously. So the book is terrific and it's a great inside look at how journalism works. And I'm really, really eager to see how that will um, come across on screen. I think for a lot of us on this story in
0: particular, it's really hard to piece together what came out in the story first, what we know now about Harvey Weinstein versus what was known before this was before the story came out in October of 2017, or even, you know, a week later, Jody Cantor publishes a follow-up with more stories of it. Um, and Rebecca, I don't know if you had read this book. You know, we've all read the original story, but what was your familiarity with the the backstory of how they put the story together before reading she said? Similar to what
3: you're saying, Katie, I couldn't remember. What came out in sort of that first story, and then what came out in the following waves. But I, I, you know, I was working at a trade at the time, and obviously, rumors about what Harvey may have done circulated in the trades for years, and no one was able to sort of land the story for the reasons Radhika mentioning about really getting enough uh, to make a story publishable. And so I remember thinking it had to be reporters from outside pure entertainment journalists that would have to break the story because of sort of the way Harvey can manipulate the press for for decades. And so I remember wanting to know every detail about how they were able to break down this wall that other reporters had tried and, and been unable to do. And and so reading the book and and the way they really walk you through all the steps they had to take to make this happen, it, it was a perfect dream of how
0: I wanted to learn about how they did it. Yeah, David, you, are there any of those standout moments for you in terms of how the the cake got baked, basically how they pulled off this trick?
4: Um, I, I think it's understanding at times the gap, to Radika's earlier point, between when they learn something and when someone comes forward and, and just the amount of steps that it can require to actually have someone go on the record. I mean, I, I love when they find the sentence. And they realize this is not only the sentence that will convince people, more people, more women to come forward about their experiences in a public way, but a sentence that also asserts the importance of what they're doing and that kind of brings together all of these messy, awful experiences in a way that can signal real potential change down the line.
0: Do you want to read the Um, sentence for people who haven't read it?
4: Yes. The sentence is, I can't change what happened to you in the past, but together we may be able to use your experience to help protect other people. And this is the line that um, they settle on to essentially... I don't want to say convince the women to to come forward but to give them a new context for what coming forward would mean because there are mm-hmm. over the course of the book so many conversations so many difficult conversations so many so much understandable reluctance about breaking this system and and what that could mean for these women and that sentence on both sides right on on the reporting side and on these women's side um gives a new meaning to what this could be. And it's a a really moving moment, just watching, reading them have this kind of epiphany.
0: I was so sad seeing the way that Gwyneth Paltrow talked about it because she ultimately decides not to go on the record in this first story. She comes out in a later one. And she worried that being associated with it would make it like a tawdry, like, sex scandal thing, which is just so unfathomable in the way that we talk about this now. But it totally makes sense. It's a way to kind of time travel back to before the story broke and how much it managed to change things, that she needed the solidarity of other people. Um, And Ashley Judd, you know, deciding to go out on a limb on her own um, was, you know, had a really similar thought process and she decided to go for it. Um, I think it really reframes how courageous it was for them to go forward in this.
4: One thing that really stuck out to me reading this book is, and it sounds perhaps very basic or or assumed, but the sheer courage of a lot of these women. I mean, someone like Ashley Judd, I wasn't really familiar with, every beat of her story. And it's it's pretty extraordinary what she did. And especially getting this kind of coda that they provide at the end of the book um, and, and, and hearing them reflect on their experiences of coming forward and what that meant, you know, it gives you even a greater level of respect for a lot of these people.
1: You know, one thing that stood out to me as I was looking at the book again to prepare for this conversation is that it, it matters so much who the reporters are. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, as an editor, we think about this all the time when we're assigning Stories. It's like, are we going to, you know, any kind of story, an investigation, a profile, you you want there to be the possibility of a connection between the writer and the subject, because it's going to make for a better conversation and a better story and something more engaging, ultimately, um, and more revealing. And that's without any tension in the picture. But obviously, when you're reporting a story like this one, it's crucial to establish trust. And I was struck by the account of when Jodie Cantor goes to see the former assistant, Zelda Perkins, in London. um, She goes to speak to her, and, you know, this is someone who had had a traumatic experience and had not discussed it for decades. And this meeting was the most Perkins had opened up to any of the journalists who had contacted her over the years about the Weinstein rumors. And then in parentheses, the others had all been men, she said pointedly. Yeah. And it's like... Well, wow, you know, I mean, and we know that that is how our business has worked as well. I mean, it, it was male-dominated, especially tough stories uh, like this one. The image of the investigative reporter is Woodward and Bernstein in a way, very different terrain. But just it was a reminder that for women who were reluctant to speak, who had not spoke, who were in the habit of not speaking, um, and who were isolated by these experiences, even though in retrospect we know how common they were and what what was made possible through solidarity. Part of the point was to isolate them and box them into agreements where they couldn't speak and they couldn't find that community of other people who had been harassed or abused. And so to think that this was her first opportunity to speak to a woman about this experience that had, you know, that had so traumatized her specifically as a woman, I thought was Really worth remembering, and again, sometimes just seeing that representation on screen is really meaningful. I, th- I suspect it will be very meaningful to see to see all of that reporting happening among women
3: It's interesting you bring that up because I was reading the acknowledgments at the end of the book and kind of realizing that you know Megan was a new mom at the time and Jody was a mom of two and as we all know, journalism takes you away from your family a lot. And I can't imagine, you know, having a daughter and and working on a story like this. And I don't think it was right for the book, but I do hope the film touches a little bit more about their own lives and where they were sort of in their, in their world as they were reporting the story, because, you know, I can't imagine the sacrifices they had to make to, to stay on this story while still having a family and a, a life.
0: I do think there's a shot in the trailer of maybe it's Carrie Mulligan. Um, you know, Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan are playing uh, Jodie and Megan. I think she's next to a dock a, a baby equipment that uh, if you know, you know. <laughs> You're familiar <laughs> with it. So it does seem like the the fact of her being a new mom. I mean, I was saying this to Radhika before we started. I think Megan came back from maternity leave in July, and they published the story in early October, which is just an astonishing time frame for what they managed to report. Uh, so I, too, I don't know
1: how they did it. Well, and in that... On that note, it was a competitive story, right? Mm -hmm. um, Like, it had circulated for years, but there was a kind of gathering momentum um, around the reporting. And so, on the one hand, you need the time and the space, especially to give victims the ability to really consider what it would mean, to speak to them in the first place, to go on the record, all of that stuff. On the other hand, you have the kind of need to break the story and and also to stay a step ahead of Weinstein himself um, and his... Lawyers and and you know coming back to that coming back to that point about working on this story with a newborn or um, with kids I mean it was a tough story but also there were legitimate threats um, or, to their safety and that itself is incredibly scary to think about.
4: I read this after I read Ronan Farrow's book uh, Catch and Kill, which is essentially. Written as a spy thriller, and not, uh, you know, and and persuasively so. You know, he really writes about Black Cube and and the tactics used against him and what he was observing. And it's funny, he also writes a lot more about his personal life, um, to your point, Rebecca, and the sort of struggles of his relationship as he gets more and more invested in this story and the ways in which uh, it consumes him. And uh, it's it's such a contrast to She Said, which is it's just so incredibly focused on the reporting. And they're great companion pieces. I think it's nice that you have both out there and they paint a fuller picture together, I think, of not only what it takes to do do this kind of reporting, but also the toll it takes, because there are those hints in She Said, I think, of just the extraordinary amount of sacrifice that staying on a story like this takes... But there's also the nature of the reporting, which I appreciate how much this book focuses on that and sticks to that because it's so illuminating and even for, I'm sure, journalists like us, really awe-inspiring.
0: Yeah, and there was stuff that isn't wasn't ever in the reporting that I hadn't seen before. Like, they made early contact with Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor, who were working together at the time. And they called them a, a two-woman celebrity switchboard to put them in touch with people. And, you know, their names are nowhere in the story. But, like, the amount of people who can be operating behind the scenes whose names are never mentioned in the final product that makes something like this
1: possible is pretty incredible. That's such a convincing detail early in the book, the puzzle of how to reach out to very high profile people who would have been in Harvey's path without going through all of their protective layers publicists agents managers etc knowing that the impulse at least thinking back to that time would have been to deflect for, you know n- not for nefarious reasons but but simply for the um, to protect you know for the protection and safety of their clients even if a publicist or an agent knew that something had happened, it was by then such a habit to push it down and not discuss it and not want to be involved. And so just that very simple puzzle of like, well, all right, if we want to talk to the people who were in those movies or the people who worked closely with the Weinstein company over the years, how do we even get to them? You can see right from the get-go that it takes some ingenuity in terms of the reporting.
4: Absolutely.
0: But then once you have Gwyneth Paltrow, the, uh, her, her Rolodex becomes very useful as the, as the reporting goes on. This book ends in a really interesting way that I wasn't expecting. Um, and I I cannot imagine that Christine Blasey Ford is going to be a major character in the movie. It seems like a hard way to structure a film especially. But I do think that the aftermath of Weinstein and Me Too and all of this is really interesting to consider as part of the story. And it makes me wonder if it can end entirely triumphantly because of how complex what came after that is. How did you guys feel about the, I guess, the final two or three chapters of this book and kind of where it leaves you?
3: I'm glad they added that sort of wider lens on this story. Of course, the part of the book where they're breaking the story was the most fascinating to me. But I think giving it that perspective is going to allow this book to stand the test of time more because it is obviously something Hollywood and society at large is still going to be struggling with and dealing with uh, for a long time. So, you know, while I didn't find it as captivating because, you know, they weren't, it wasn't so much about their, they weren't dug in as reporters as much at that part of the story, I did think it added a perspective that was necessary for this book. But I, think it would make it very difficult in movie form to have all that in there.
1: Yeah. It's a reminder that, you know, while this book has to end, A, it's it's impossible to talk about a happy ending here or even a satisfying conclusion just given the terrible th- things that prompted this investigation in the first place. Um, it's, and it's also just, it's, it's just not that simple. Um, there aren't simple fixes for that kind of behavior. There's not a simple picture of what justice looks like for people whose careers were upended, for people who were traumatized and wounded. But then also, it's the beginning of a larger movement that, as we know about all movements for social justice, just to cast a wide net, almost always feels like there's one step forward and two steps back, you know. And I feel like we've lived now with Other kinds of stories in this zone, Jeffrey Epstein comes to mind, you know, that sense of kind of like, here's, here was some criminal behavior going on for years and years, and it's finally coming to light, but, but it's very hard to find justice when you're looking at that kind of situation. So I felt like the end, I mean, I I agree, it's kind of like, it's a good reminder that these narratives are still unfolding, Um, and the reporting of the Weinstein story is a beginning. I mean, in a, in, to go farther back, the reporting of Bill O'Reilly and Roger Ailes, you know, these are all kind of beginnings um, and they push us forward, but it's not necessarily a narrative that has an end.
0: Yeah, mm. and the Christine Blasey Ford story, just being that she did the brave thing and she stepped forward and it didn't change anything. I think that's what's so heartbreaking about her story and, and, and important to include for that reason.
4: Yeah, it's a bold narrative choice, I think, because you have this really riveting, satisfying narrative arc with this, you know, the main crux of the reporting, the main crux of the book. Um, and it's, it's kind of undone at the end a little bit in that reminder, in that understanding that here was an, another person who was talking about a very powerful man, and it did not go that way. And having her voice to compliment all the women uh, who speak in the book before that is really sobering, but also... There, there is even hope in, in what she says and, and there is a real power in being able to hear her coming off of that. Yeah, I, I think in a way the book needs that. It needs that undoing a little bit.
0: Well, we have a trailer for the movie, as I said. And, um, you know, I think we can all have some guesses or some hopes of what we would want to see in the movie version that maybe we can wrap it up with. I am excited about Samantha Morton as Zelda Perkins, who there's just kind of this one brief shot of her in the trailer. But she has such gravity and that character, the the person is really important in the book in terms of moving the story forward. So I just feel like there's a lot of cool, like, you know, maybe one scene stunner potential in that.
4: Uh, Andrew Bauer's Dean Bacquet is... one I'm really excited about. He's such a great actor. He doesn't do a lot of movies, and he's a another presence in the book. Who he has a couple of scenes that are really illuminating. There's he talks about in a way um, his own perceived past faults uh, as a reporter, and and it kind of informs their direction at one point in the book. And and I I hope he gets some of those scenes to play because he's he's really wonderful.
0: Yeah, Radek, as a Times veteran, are you are you ready for the? I mean, the Times has been in movies before, so maybe this is. <laughs> Not too familiar. When I
1: watched the trailer, I was like, "Oh, look! It's nice to be back in the building." Um, I was only there for eleven months, but it made a big impact. It was a big year at the times, in large part because of this story. So, and as an editor, I'm sort of a meeting nerd, so I'm looking forward to seeing, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the kind of drama, like the 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 phone call and the, you know, everybody sitting around a table and kind of dealing with that moment of, you know, moving forward with the story and kind of the conversations around that. I, I I They're familiar to me. I've been in those rooms, um, and there's something about those moments, those sort of crucible moments, that there's a real adrenaline rush to it. You realize that, look, not every story is going to be like that, but once in a while you get an opportunity to be involved in a story that could really make a difference. And to have that feeling communicated on screen, I think... I hope it will be special to see.
0: Yeah, also um, Patricia Clarkson is playing Rebecca Corbett, who uh, you know I think is a really major, well-credited figure in the book. And between that and then on the dropout, um, Lisa Gay Hamilton plays an editor at the, um, the Wall Street Journal, yeah, and she's such made a big character. happy to see, yeah. I
1: feel like this is a good year for newspaper editors. I'm <laughs> happy to see it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, and you know, the other thing is, and I joke about meetings, but it's like, it's also, it's a reminder that this work is collective, and I think that's what draws a lot of us to it. Like, we have our individual tasks within our publications. And I know as editor-in-chief, I'm called on to make decisions that come up to my desk alone. But I think at our best, we are working together. And so to see the collaboration between Jodi and Megan and the ways that they sort of bring their sources out from that place of isolation into something that feels more like solidarity. And then to see the solidarity too in the newsroom, I think that is really amazing, an amazing thing to visualize.
3: Yeah, I mean, I as well am excited for, you know, those little scenes that we only know from being in newsrooms of like reporters reading over a copy editor's shoulder as they edit their story and things like that, because I think we're all just nerds when it comes to that. But I'm, I'm actually curious how the film will spark conversation about people who were a part of the story who are still working in the business. I mean, you know, we need to know David Glasser and Lisa Bloom. There are a lot of characters and real people in this book that will, I assume, likely be in the movie and are still a part of Hollywood. So I I think no matter what, this film is going to be a conversation starter or, or I guess, re-spark those conversations that maybe still need to be had about all of that.
0: Uh, Well, she said uh, the movie is coming out on November 18th from Universal. It's, uh, as I said, starring Zoe Kazan and Carrie Mulligan and directed by Maria Schroeder and think we all would highly recommend reading the book beforehand. Um, it's it's a great book regardless, but I think would provide really interesting context for what you see. Um, and thanks, Radhika, for joining us to talk about it. Uh, next time we'll have like a, a light comedy book to discuss. <laughs> always up. here for Jane Austen, Katie. You know that. <laughs> Given the way that Hollywood adopts Jane Austen, I'm sure it'll be no time at all. <laughs> That's right. That does it for today's episode. We will be back next week. Our book club will continue with Bones and All, soon to be a Luca Guadagnino movie. Very intriguing. In the meantime, you can find us at manetiefair.com, on Twitter at LittleGoldMen, and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And David. David Canfield, 97. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. You can also text us with your HBO Max or any other questions at joinsubtext.com slash LittleGoldMen or text 718-550-2059. Our editor and producer is Brett Pukes, and this week's award for the best name for what this podcast will inevitably be called in five years goes to David Canfield.
4: The TikTok contingent.